Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast. My name is Philip and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 30, The Development of Roman Theatre, an interview with Dr Elodie Palliar. Following the last episode with details of some of the performance elements used in Roman theatre, I promised that we would be moving on to the playwrights with a look at the life and times of Plautus. We will do that, but I had an opportunity to have a conversation with Dr Elodie Palliar about Roman and Greek theatre, and I wanted to get that out to you as soon as possible. In fact, part of the conversation fits nicely into where we are now, as Dr Palliar puts some more detail on aspects of the way Roman theatre developed from Greek theatre that I discussed in previous episodes. Dr Palliar brings a wealth of knowledge to the subject. She is Honorary Associate in the Department of Classics and Ancient History at the University of Sydney, and Lecturer and Scientific Collaborator in the Department of Ancient Civilizations at the University of Basel, which is where I spoke to her from. She is currently leading a research project on Greek theatre in Roman Italy, funded by the Swiss National Science Foundation. She's the author of The Stage and the City, Non-Elite Characters in the Tragedies of Sophocles, published in Paris in 2017 and she is currently co-editing two forthcoming collective volumes, one on Greek theatre and meta-theatre, Definitions, Problems and Limits, and one on theatre and autocracy in the ancient world. In parallel to her interest in ancient Greek theatre, she is also working on the social structure of classical Athens and the emergence of democracy. We had a fascinating conversation over Zoom, and thankfully the IT held up and the audio quality is good with only a couple of very short dropouts. I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation, and I really would like to thank Dr. Palliar for her generosity with her time spent talking to me. This episode is the first half of our conversation, where we concentrated on the way Roman theatre developed after Greek theatre, but, as you will hear, it's not as simple as that. I opened with a very broad question. Uh, So there's a general agreement that the Roman theatre was... uh, influenced by Greek theatre and we can identify where Greek comedy was freely adapted by the Roman playwrights and there's lots of evidence that Menander in particular was held in very high regard by the Romans. So do you see the transition of Greek to Romans as simply a question of the Romans copying the Greeks or or is there much more to it than that? Well I think you might guess the answer. There is much (laughs) more to it than that. It is much more complicated and we don't know all of the parameters that were behind the the transition from Greek to Roman theatre. Of course, the influence of of Greek theatre is very easy to spot in in Roman drama, especially in, in Roman comedy. And the influence of, of Menander is, is very clear. But I think that the best way to answer the question is perhaps to take things um, in a chronological order and to start back with uh, what happens after, after Menander. Okay. So like Greek theater doesn't die after Menander. There is still a lot going on um, on Greek uh, theater stages after Menander. And recent scholarship has made a lot of progress into um, learning more about what was going on uh, in the post-classical world uh, of of Greek theater. So Greek drama, Greek tragedy, Greek comedy kept evolving after Menander, kept being performed, 
it was still an ongoing process. There, there was no real feeling of decline of Greek theater after the classical period. I think that's very much a myth that, uh, that has uh, various reasons behind it. But there is no death of Greek theater after the classical period. It was very much something that was still alive. So it means that when we are looking at the origin of Roman theater, we must count on influences that could come not only from classical plays or from uh, established, let's say, or classical authors like Melanger, but also from a variety of, of other performances, live performances that people could uh, attend at the time. And besides the tradition of Greek theater, there was also a very lively, um, I mean, a lot of theatrical activities in Italy itself from local Italic traditions. Like we know that uh, Etruscans or Oscans had um, a lot of theatrical activities and they influenced the, the shaping of Roman drama as well. So how, how does it work? Like Roman drama emerged really at a time where around Rome and in Italy itself, there was a bit of a blending of Greek theatrical tradition, local Italic theatrical traditions. And as Rome expanded into Italy, it came into contact with local theatrical activities. And then when it um, went further, when Rome went further south, it became in more direct contact with Greek uh, theatrical tradition, because the south of, of Italy was still very much um, a Greek area before the, the, the Roman conquest. That's how the story goes. That's where we think that the, the influence of Greek theater was really at the heart of what we qualify now as Roman drama. There is this landmark, if you want, um, with Livius Andronicus in 240 BC, who was supposedly captured during the, the conquest of Tarentum by, by the Romans. And he is credited with being the first one to have translated first the Odyssey into Latin, and then to have translated a Greek play, tragedy or comedy, into Latin. So here I just, uh, perhaps it's good to stop a bit on the, the word translate. <laughs> Please, that's always an, always an interesting question. I mean, it, it's important that, um, that we don't imagine a translation of a Greek play into Latin as a translation that we, we, we have in, you know, face-to-face -face books where you have the Latin on one side and the English on the other side. Uh, it's not. It's not that. It's an adaptation. It's not following the words of the Greek poets and translating them simply into a new language. It's adapting a Greek play into a new context for a new culture for a different audience. So translation is probably not the right word, but 
if we keep that that in mind, let's say, if you want, uh, that the most direct influence of Greek theater into the origin of Roman theater can be pinpointed here in, in, in that very particular moment when Livius Andronicus has translated a Greek play into Latin. Right, and we think that is, a, is very much an adaptation of an original, so bringing something Roman to it. Yes, absolutely. There, there, there is, it, it's very important to, to keep that in mind. Um, there is something Roman, even in, in, the, in, in later plays that look so much like Menander plays, there is a Roman input in it. But there is a bit more to it than that as well, because if we look at Roman comedies, um, there were different sub genre of Roman comedies. Not all of them were, were very much influenced by Greek um, comedies, for example. Some of them, they might have been more influenced by local Italic forms of theater, like the Atelan or the, the Oscan farce that's, that, that were you know, shorter pieces like sketches, if you want, little, little funny, funny moments of perhaps 15, 20 minutes, rather than a full big comedy like we can imagine um, being a com comedy of Menander. So all of that was influencing the, the process, if you want, the evolution, the origin of, of Roman drama and Roman comedy in particular. So it's very important, I think, to keep in mind that, yes, there is a bit of truth in seeing Greek theater as the model behind Roman theater, but there is indeed much more to it than that. Yes, and the Romans seem to have a preference for comedy, basically. They they did adapt tragedies, but not anything to the extent, or as far as we can tell from what survived, that they enjoyed comedy. Yeah, it's it might be true, but... I would like to be a bit to 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 give you a bit more <laughs> more nuance on that because as you as you say exactly, uh, we always depend on what has survived, and in in many cases we know of of Roman tragedies of which nothing has survived, but they still existed, which might indicate that there much have been many more than what we actually have. And even for, for Roman comedies, not much, not much has survived. There must have been much more. And here, I think it's, it's good to, to say a few words about less, about so-called minor genres, if you want. When, when we, we think about comedy, we think about tragedy, we think about a very formal uh, sort of, um, spectacle, if you want, with really codified with um, a structure that was really inspired from the Greek model, if you want. But there were so many other minor genres, as I as I said before, like the Oscan farce or the Atelan. But there were mimes as well. There were shorter pieces uh, that could be funny, that could be less funny, <laughs> and they they came to have quite a lot of success in the Roman world as well. And despite the fact that we know almost nothing about them because they were less based on a formal written script than a long comedy or a long tragedy. So a long comedy or a long tragedy, you can be pretty sure that there was 
a poet behind it, writing it or at least composing it. And then you can have the text transmitted to us. For minor genres or shorter pieces that were sometimes improvised, if there is no written text behind them, then they don't survive up to us. It doesn't mean that they, they were less successful or less composed, but we just don't have them anymore, unfortunately. Mm. So at some point, somebody made a choice about which ones were to be preserved because that was an expensive business. Copying out a text multiple times uh, by hand um, was not as easy, you know, before the printing press was not an easy thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. There, there has been there has been conscious choices about what was worthy of of copying, and sometimes it had to do with um, what was best for uh, to be turned into educational material. So things that you could teach in schools or things that were seen as having some sort of moral value or philosophical value or sometimes historical value, they would be much more copied than things that looked like just composed for a bunch of people to have fun around. And it's not the same same thing as today where you can pretty much record anything and you don't really have to make a choice. So there is this conscious process of choosing what can be preserved for what should be preserved for the future, if you want. But there is also this, this simply historical luck, if you want, historical chance, things that we are not uh, composing writing uh, originally, they sim- simply could not survive. You could not record them. So, you know, they just disappeared. And, and of the things like the, the farces and the short comedy sketches uh, you were talking about just there, that really we, we don't have anything, but do we even have fragments of, of those or are we just going on how they've been reported by later commentators? Well, there is a bit of, of that as well. We, we have authors who say what they thought about that kind of spectacles, of course. And given that those our sources are, are rather or almost exclusively very elite and very educated, you can imagine what, yeah. what they thought about that. <laughs> but um, the other thing that was going on um, in Rome at the time was that some of those minor genres kind of found their way into more literary shapes. Like we have more literary uh, mimes, for example, or even more literary atelans. And those, I mean, I'm not quite sure if we have a lot (laughs) of that, or even if we have anything at all, but they might have had a better chance at surviving for longer than something that was less literary, if you want. Yeah, again, so it's a choice somebody is making about what is proper literature and and what is just entertainment for the masses and of no value preserving. Yeah, but it's in some cases you can you can say who or what group made the choice, but in some cases it's simply it's sometimes a matter of um, you know the society in, in itself, if you want the what what did this particular cultural society value? 
how it was perceived, and then the choice makes makes itself by itself. If mm. you want, some things just don't survive, and 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 that's it. It doesn't mean that then they were not uh, important for for the spectators. I mean, the spectators could have liked those short non-literary pieces much more than than having than attending a comedy of Plotus or, or, or Terence. Mm. But that's, that doesn't really correlate with uh, keeping those little pieces uh, for posterity. Right. And, and we can see, I, I think, uh, because I've um, covered the Theatre of Pompeii um, in some detail in one episode and talked about the other permanent theatres in Rome. And they were these huge buildings that seated thousands and thousands of people uh, and, and appear to be incredibly popular but never quite as popular as going to the circus, um, watching gladiators beating up other gladiators and that, that kind of thing, which is one of these strange things about Roman society that I myself have you know, a bit of a problem getting my head around what these people really did enjoy and how they could move from one moment watching effectively an execution of another human being and then wanting to go and see a play. It's, it's a difficult one, I think. Yeah, it is. It is a very, very difficult question, and I'm not quite sure we have the right answer. Um, more often than not, we have absolutely no clear idea of what was going on in those theaters. Mm. <laughs> so, first thing, uh, if you simply ask uh, ask me, tell me a play that was performed in the theater in Pompeii, I can't. I mean, there is there is. A bit of indirect evidence about what kind of uh, spectacle would have taken place in, in such uh, big theatres, but there is no way we can, as as we can in in, in Athens. In Athens, you can say in uh, this theatre such play was performed in such year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have that for most of the of the time for for Rome, and yeah, the theatre of, of the permanent theatre in Rome is a very, very late acquisition, if you want, on, on the on the theatrical stage uh, uh, in Rome. So everything that was performed before the time it was established was on on temporary stages. So it means that it might have been a very much more intimate uh, spectacle than what was going on in, in those big big theatres, and. Again, it shapes a bit how much Roman early playwrights could import from from Greek drama and what couldn't really be translated into the new Latin medium because the context, the condition for the performances were different. I think it would be very difficult to present one of those really serious Greek tragedies when you're in the middle of a marketplace on a temporary stage with the world going on around you in, in the forum or wherever. Yeah, indeed. I mean, you could perhaps present extracts or little scenes uh, of a Greek tragedy if you want. But if you are really performing on on the marketplace in the suburb of Rome, first you, you better perform in Latin because otherwise... Not everyone would understand, and would be people would get bored quite quite easily. I think. <laughs> so yeah, I think 
it's it's a bit of a shame that we don't know much more about what was going on in terms of theatrical activities in Rome, but it is much, much richer than 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 simply having reperformances of a Greek plays and Greek plays translated into Latin. There was a lot. Mm. We don't know about, <laughs> about what it was, but there was a lot going on. And as you say, the, the, the sheer size of those big theater buildings indicates that there was a demand, there was an audience for theatrical performances. Of what sort exactly, then the question <laughs> is difficult to answer. <laughs> Yes, I think coming as someone who came to this with very little knowledge about Roman theatre, that was my biggest surprise, That um, because it never really gets mentioned. Uh, we always hear about the games and the chariot races, um, gladiators, but never about Roman theatre as, as a mass spectacle. Yeah, and, and the problem was already felt at the time. There is a Roman comedy, if I remember well, where you know the playwright complains that... Uh, his play is performed at the same time as uh, the, the as an athletic con contest or a, a boxer's <laughs> fight in some other place, and that spectators are actually you know leaving the theater to attend rather the most exciting the more exciting <laughs> spectacle. So we don't quite know whether it's it has any kind of historical reality this this anecdotes, but. It means that indeed theatre had to compete with all those other kind of entertainments that were much more spectacular, much more visual. And, you know, if you think that in, in classical Greek theatre, there was this kind of rule, if you want, or at least this, uh, this habit of not showing anyone being killed on stage. So that's something that was pretty much respected in, in, in classical Greek plays. You have a messenger coming on stage to tell you what happens when someone got killed, but the death in itself is not shown on, 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 on stage. So to Romans who are used to see you know, gladiatorial fights or, or hunts or with lots of blood and, and, and dead people around or animals, then it must have sounded simply ridiculous. And uh, here again, you know, there is an influence of Greek theater, but there is a lot of other kind of, of parameters going on into what was Latin theater, what was Roman drama. So in your work, you've looked at the question of how far Greek theatre survived alongside Latin theatre. And you already mentioned there that the um, southern part of Italy was heavily influenced by, by Greek. Indeed, there's Greek colonies there at the time. Can you say, to say something about to what extent Greek theatre coexisted with Latin theatre? And ap apart from the fact there were some Greek people living in Italy, was, was there another reason why it carried on? Yeah, again, that's a very, very interesting question. Thank you. Because uh, sometimes we think that when Latin theatre is invented, it's not the right word, but let's, let's use it. Hmm. When Latin theatre is invented, then Greek theatre disappears. It's not true. The Greek and, and, and Roman drama, Greek and Latin theatre, uh, coexisted for a long, long time, for centuries, after the invention of Latin drama. 
after this 240 BC, the time when we have this Livius Andronicus translating the first play into Latin, Greek data was still performed. So the reason for that, I mean, there are many reasons. One of the, of the, the easiest reason to discuss is probably the fact that simply the Eastern part of the Mediterranean was a Greek speaking area. Um, even, even with the, the, the development and the, the extension of Rome, Greece and the, the, the East were still Greek speaking areas. In those places, there was absolutely no demands, no need for Latin drama. And so Greek drama was still performed in, in, that, in those parts of the, of the empire, if you want. And what is especially interesting is that those big games or big contests at which we had uh, categories for competition for Greek theater, you know, everyone knows about the Olympic games, but there were many other places in Greece and in the East where there were regular big uh, competition uh, shaped as religious festivals at which there were contests uh, for Greek plays. And those things, they still existed. Even, even when Rome conquered Greece and, and then went further east and went everywhere around the Mediterranean basin, it still existed, those big festivals. And they were part of a well-established circuit with um, Greek performers that were at some point, that began at some point to be organized as um, kind of powerful, if you want, associations. So it means Greek theater was not just a matter of transmitting old plays and, and then re-performing it. They were, it was still a very much evolving medium, something that was still experienced by many people in, in the, the, the Eastern Mediterranean and elsewhere as well. As for Rome and Italy itself, the question is a bit different because when we think about Rome and Italy, I mean, Rome, it's the heart of the Roman Empire. It's the heart of the, even before it became an empire, I mean, it's really the heart of Roman or Latin culture. So why would people keep organizing performances of Greek plays in Rome and in Italy, whereas it was pretty much the center of, of Latin culture and from 240 BC, theater in Latin existed. So why would you do that? Why would you organize a, a performance in Greek whereas everyone around you speaks Latin and, and Latin is the dominant culture in the area? So that's, uh, that, that was the object of my, of my current and, and previous research proje project. So again, as for, for many other questions around those lines, the evidence is, not, uh, is a bit scarce. <laughs> but still, there is good evidence that performances in Greek took place uh, in Rome and Italy, in, in, in places where Roman culture was dominant. 
as well as in places like Naples or southern Italy, where the Greek influence was still very much felt. But even in Rome itself, we have evidence for performances in Greek. And that's, that indeed raises many questions. Why would you do that, frankly? <laughs> so I have a few suggestions <laughs> as answers, if you want. <laughs> One of, the, one of the, the reasons had to do, of course, with the, the, the prestige of classical Greek theater. And classical Greek theater was very, very early idealized as an art form. And, you know, even when Rome tries to define its identity, it always had to articulate itself compared to Greek culture, if you want. So it was generally, generally true, but it was true for theater as well. Latin theater existed, but Greek theater was the model, the model to imitate, but the model to you know, improve on and uh, to sometimes modify. And you could, you could play on that as almost infinitely. So there is this notion of ideal, classical Greek theater, this prestige, if you want, of Greek theater that was still felt, that might have been the reason behind why you would from time to time still perform, re-perform a classical Greek play or a play of Menander. Another of the reasons is a bit linked to what I was saying before. These circuits, these, those, those big uh, important religious festivals all around the Mediterranean were established very much within a Greek framework. And as Rome developed, there was a need to be included into this um, Mediterranean framework, if you want, into this circuit. And then, of course, you would have to, to make the, the Greek performers feel welcome. Otherwise, they would have not, not have been included into that, that context, into that circuit. So that might be, that might be another, another reason. Again, another reason might have been simply the fact that the Greek performers were more experienced and more highly regarded as um, local Roman performers. So if you want to attract the best, the most talented actors, for example, and if you know that they spoke only Greek or, or they used to only perform in Greek, then you had to organize uh, a performance in Greek language, not in Latin, because you would like to have the best performers. So that's, that's another, another reason. And then um, the same question can be asked again for the imperial period. Uh, that's, there is again, there, there are again another, some, some other reasons why emperors would have liked to organize Greek plays in Rome and in, and in Italy and all over the, the Mediterranean. So some of the reasons I mentioned before are still valid for the imperial period, of course. But there is something to add to that, I think, uh, in the fact that Roman emperors used their kind of imagined and um, alleged linked 
links to classical culture to legitimate their own imperialistic ambitions. So that's something that started before already, but there was this idea, whether it was clearly expressed or not, that to be a legitimate emperor, to be a legitimate ruler in the Mediterranean area, you would have to be familiar, you would have to be close to Greek culture because of the Athenian, the idealization of the Athenian classical model. So that, that might be one of the reasons why uh, Roman emperors like to have uh, Greek plays performed, like to have contact with associations of Greek performers or, or theatrical practitioners. So that, that's something that's, that we have to, I think, keep in mind, these links between um, the autocratic rule of the emperor and the idea, idealized Greek past. Yeah, that's probably another thing that's quite difficult for us to imagine because the Romans were the conqueror in this case and, and quite, um, you know, very, very effectively so. But they seemed very willing in many areas, and obviously theatre is one of them from what you're saying, to adopt the Greek model and to, to see something that they really liked about the Greek theatre, the Greek way of life generally, it seems to me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There, there is always this this tension I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating topic of, of research, of inquiry, this articulation between Roman and Greek culture, between Roman and Greek identity. So there is always this tension in Rome. Um, you know, they conquered Greece militarily, if you want, at some point. So they were definitely stronger physically or at a military mm. level. But culturally, um, if you take theater, there is, there is something that is quite interesting too. It is the fact that Latin drama or theater in Latin kind of die, very, dies very quickly. Uh, at some point, it seems that there are no new comedies or tragedy in Latin that are, that are created anymore. And you know, Greek theater spread all around the Mediterranean, including in Rome in Italy, uh, which were parts of the, uh, of the area that didn't speak Greek mainly. It's not the case for Latin theater. There is still quite a lot of work to, to do to perhaps explore the spread of Latin drama to the, to the East, but here, one of the reasons why not much has been done on that is the fact that there isn't much evidence and there, is, there isn't many reasons why we should think that Latin drama could have spread to the East. The, 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 the Greece and the, and the Eastern part of the Roman Empire were, very, were always Greek-speaking areas and, and, and Greek culture was, was very much felt there. So Rome was clever enough, instead of trying to fight what, what was, uh, to fight a culture that was very much um, locally strong, to try to absorb it into, <laughs> into its empire rather than replacing it by a Latin culture that was still young 
and perhaps not felt as strong as Greek culture was around the Mediterranean. So that that's I mean lead lead us to <laughs> to a whole discussion about you know imperial tactics of Rome. But I think even when we talk about something as as restricted as theater we can see that as well yes sadly i don't have time to go into all the nuances of the roman empire but um i, I think that's really interesting because of course as soon as um, the empire split then greek is the dominant language in in the byzantine empire i mean we haven't got there yet but theater is very restricted in byzantium because of the religious influence and uh, although justinian did manage to marry an actress um, that just as a side question on all of that, I mean, you're talking about the lack of evidence there is for a lot of this. Do you, at what rate are we discovering new evidence? Uh, we re I read about, I was reading about Menander's uh, plays being discovered in Egyptian papyri when mummies were opened in 1950 something, I think it was. So, I mean, is there much new evidence that comes to light or are we really going over what we have and, and that's it? Well, you can always, always hope for chance discoveries like this Menander. <laughs> um, but quite frankly, it happens very rarely. <laughs> so we work with what we have and we hope for more pap papyrological discoveries and um, for the publication of new inscriptions sometimes. Epigraphy, you know, inscriptions are another source of of evidence that is quite important for for theatre as well. It's not it's not only a matter of reading and rereading Cicero ten thousand times and, and trying to find the new interpretation that no one had thought about uh, to extract new evidence about about theatre. No, sometimes uh, it's it's good to to have a look at inscriptions as well. So other documentary evidence is very helpful too. Also, I must say that um, in my in my own research, having a, a, a look at what was available for Italy and Rome, so there are thousands and, and millions of inscriptions from Rome and Italy uh, from the, the, the from Republican time to the, the early empire. But bizarrely, I found that not much gives us very good information about theater. They didn't seem to be that interested in, in, in recording what was performed, for example. You don't get an inscription on the theater that tells you, oh, in this theater, this play, playwright presented his play and it's uh, such and such day. So we don't have that. What we have is, for example, tombstones with um, inscription that record that the, the, the deceased person was an actor or a performer or something like that. But it doesn't, you, you don't go very far with that. I mean, one of the things I've done is trying to, to, to see whether we had tombstones of actors with Greek names much more frequent, frequent, frequently sorry, than with Latin names. So that might give us an evidence for the fact that indeed Greek performers were well-renowned and were much more sought after than Latin performers. But um, yeah, so there, there is a lot to do still, but the evidence, <laughs> it doesn't always 
answer our hopes. <laughs> and so we ended that part of our conversation on a note of hopefulness. Just to highlight a few things from what Dr. Paliar was saying, I was particularly struck by her emphasis on the multiple and varied influences on Roman theatre. One of the reasons the Roman Empire could continually expand over a long period as it did was the ability and the policy of the Romans to absorb cultural elements from the lands they conquered, and clearly this was also reflected in the way they absorbed and changed the different types of local theatre. As we discussed, it's a problem for scholars that there is so little evidence for the Attilan, Ossian and other forms of local drama where Greek met Roman. The idea that these popular forms of entertainment morphed into a more literary forms is also very interesting and I think illustrates just what a melting pot of ideas and styles Roman theatre and particularly Roman comedy really was. Greek culture was undoubtedly a big part of that, but I think we get a good sense now that there was much more to it than just that. The extent to which Greek language theatre was performed alongside Latin theatre was also usefully emphasised by Dr Pagliar. The admiration for all things Greek in Rome is well known, but it was interesting to hear that even the emperors saw benefit in promoting Greek theatre. We shouldn't forget that theatre was a tool of mass communication in Latin and Greek for a long period in the Roman world, even if sometimes the competition was overbearing. The story of the audience at the theatre leaving mid-performance because there was a good boxing match on is a great anecdote and one that has a terrible ring of truth about it. We can only feel sorry for the playwright and the performers. Our conversation then touched on mime and pantomime and the role that played in mass communication in the later period. I'll incorporate that into an episode on pantomime that I'm planning for later in the Roman season. Before that, the next episode will take a step back into Greek theatre and the plays of Sophocles. In the second part of our conversation, we discussed Dr Pagliar's work studying the minor characters of Sophocles and what they tell us about changes in Athenian society in the 5th century BCE. And in conclusion, I should note that you've made it with me to 30 episodes, a mini milestone. When I started planning the podcast, I thought I would be done with the Greeks and Romans within 30 episodes, which perhaps tells you how much I've been learning in the process of researching. Not including the prehistory, we've now covered some six centuries of history so far. The pace will slow once we get past the Romans, as there are better records to interrogate and more plays to discuss. It's great to have got this far with a steadily growing number of listeners. We still have a lot of theatre history ahead of us, and I'm still feeling enthusiastic about delving into it. If you have any suggestions or thoughts on the pacing of the podcast or individual episodes, please do let me know. I look forward to your company next time. If you'd like to support the podcast, please find us on patreon.com or at ko-fi.com. Or please take a couple of minutes to rate the podcast and write a review on Apple Podcasts to help other theatre folk find us. There are a lot of podcasts out there and a review really helps people to find us and decide what to listen to. Thanks for your support. And if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. Thank you.